Lord, we agree with those prayers and do desire that uh, you be glorified today and uplifted and that you might give us insight into not only who you are and that relationship that you've established within us, but uh, we may have a glimpse of what you're doing, not only in our individual lives, but what you're doing in the entire universe, actually. And we just praise you that you've given us bits and pieces of revelation to understand what you're doing. And as we look at some big picture things today, that you would, in fact, give us a sense of uh, worship to to realize that you are not only sovereign over all things, but you are also intimately involved and concerned about the little tiny details in our lives. We praise you for that. And we desire that uh, today that we would see a little bit more of that as we get into your word. Today, what I'd like to share with you from uh, Romans chapter 9, as we were praying there, we uh, we have a lot of big picture ideas that Paul is presenting to us. And uh, there's a couple of things here that I'm going to probe a little bit that I hope gives you a bigger perspective on what God is doing overall. And I forgot to mention, well, I did mention, some of you had, hadn't signed on yet, but I'm going to be doing the main teaching for Alameda Bible Church as well, where I'm going to do some big picture stuff there too. A study from eternity to eternity, world history from eternity to eternity. And I call it world history is Jewish, as Linda was indicating. But anyway, we see some big picture items in Romans chapter 9. Some of these issues uh, primarily deal with the, the Jewish people. There were Jewish Christians in the first century, and I believe that it, this is addressed to them to understand what God is doing, that they may be in a better place to be able to share with their fellow Jewish people that uh, don't know Christ, that they'd have a biblical perspective. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time reviewing here because I want to get into the passage, but we're in 9 through 11, where Paul is vindicating the righteousness of God primarily with a Jewish mindset in mind. He's explaining from uh, the, the history and the past of Israel how God has chosen them, sovereignly chose them to be his people. But they have a record and a history of uh, rejecting him. One of the final rejections was the rejection of the Messiah, their own Messiah. And as a result, they are themselves under discipline, and in fact, in some ways, rejected in this time frame. But God has not replaced Israel with the church, but in fact, God still has a plan and there is a future restoration that God speaks about in chapter 11, where God will deal with Israel again. And this period called the church age is only a small part of the bigger plan of God that God has with the nation of Israel. And as I mentioned, world history is Jewish, so God is going to complete all of the promises, all of the covenants that he has given to the nation of Israel. Certainly the church will be a part of it, but the focus of the future after the church age is the nation of Israel. So Jewish people have to understand that perspective, to understand what God was doing in the first century and what he's been doing for 2,000 years and we need to understand that uh, we're not the focus of everything God is doing, as sometimes we have a tendency of thinking that the church is the end all and focus and main thing God is doing. It's only a part. And one of the main parts of what God is going to do in the future deals with the nation of Israel. So he's answering some major issues here that uh, would uh, arise in the thinking of the Jewish people Paul has just spent eight chapters discussing how the gospel is available to both Jew and Gentile on the basis of faith on Jesus Christ by grace, nothing that they are required to do other than believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that would go against the at least the current first century thinking, but also the thinking of Jewish people almost through all ages 
In fact, it's pretty common even amongst the unbeliever of doing something in order to please God. And here you have a gospel of free grace. And what about Israel as God's chosen people? Doesn't the Old Testament tell us that Israel is the focus of what God is doing? How can Gentiles now come into the picture and in fact, almost seem more prominent than Israel. So he's going to deal with that. We've already seen a little of that as we've looked at chapter 9. So Gentiles coming to God apart from the law. The law was extremely important in uh, Judaism and amongst Jewish people. And it is important. In fact, it's their constitution. And it is the means by which God had provided for them to maintain fellowship and relationship, but it was not intended to give life. And that's what Paul was talking about in chapters 1 through 8. And Gentiles can receive this life apart from the law. And then we also have seen in the immediate passage, if God hardens Pharaoh, and if Pharaoh is kind of the prototype unbeliever and the uh, prime enemy of Israel, How can he hold anyone responsible? And how can he hold the unbeliever responsible? And eventually, the individual Jew may be thinking, well, if God is sovereignly working in all the ways that Paul is mentioning in chapter 9, how can God hold anyone responsible? So the passage we're looking at is dealing with this issue of God's justice, and more particularly that we looked at last time, God's sovereignty and particularly human responsibility, the issue of human responsibility. And there is a connection and there is a relationship there, but there's also a tension that is hard to envision in our limited understanding, in our limited knowledge. So Paul is going to expand upon this concept of human responsibility. So last week we focused on chapter 9, verse 19, kind of to uh, answer an objection that particularly a Jewish audience may have. And he says, you you will say to them, to me then, why does he find fault? In other words, if God hardens, and we spent a whole session almost talking about what's involved with that, because we just have couple of verses there that tell us about it. So he had to go back into the Old Testament to understand the concept of what God is doing. And I'm going to add to that as we look at uh, verse 22 again. I'm just giving you a quick review. So why does God still find fault if he's involved in hardening? It almost seems like God is preventing Pharaoh from responding in a positive way. Now, we saw that that's not the case that this is almost the end product of a hardening process that began years earlier in the life of Pharaoh and amongst any unbeliever and Jewish people. So he asks the second question, who can resist his will? And in this paragraph, Paul is going to proceed to answer those questions. We ended last time by looking at God being sovereign And part of the answer to the question is this idea that God is sovereign like a potter, verses 20 and 21, and he refutes it. On the contrary, who are you? And he's going to inform his audience of the radical and absolute separateness from the creator and the creation, and particularly man himself. Who are you, O man? In other words, what place do you have to answer back to God? Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? In other words, we have no right, no position to be able to even ask the question. So he answers it by basically saying we have no right to receive an answer. And then he proceeds and gives an answer after he kind of rebukes the reader for even thinking along these lines. And The answer lies in this distinction between the creator and the creation that he uses the illustration of a potter. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? In other words, what right do we even have to answer? So we looked at the concept of Paul even going to the very roots of the question 
And at the roots of a question like this, questioning God is an attitude of rebellion. So part of the answer, he's going to deal with this attitude. In fact, he does that in verse 20 and questions even the right to question God, that the creature has no right, that God has no obligation to answer at all because man has very limited and very finite knowledge. We don't know all that God is doing. In fact, we don't know all about who God is, and certainly we don't know all of the plan that he has laid out in some uh, bits and pieces for us. So we have limited knowledge, and it's really also an attitude of man standing in judgment of God, questioning him and questioning his justice uh, we put ourselves in a position of judging God and uh, expecting and looking to God to answer us, and that puts us above God. And the bottom line is a misunderstanding of the concept of the separateness and the distinction between the Creator, who is separate, holy, transcendent, and the tiny universe, even the creation and certainly the tininess, even more so, of even man himself. So that's kind of a summary of what verse 20 is essentially communicating, at least as I've expanded it some. So verse 21, or does not the potter, now he's going to give give the illustration. Go ahead. Well, maybe you were going to do this, but um, I I thought that uh, what you covered about uh, from Jeremiah 18, uh, about the clay, modern clay was really valuable. Good. So I, I hope I thought you might mention that. Yeah, uh, I, I was just going to allude to it, but since you brought it out, I'll kind of elaborate a little more. But he uses an illustration. There's some illustrations of a potter that he uses in Isaiah. A couple of passages I gave you those last time. And there's a very important one in Jeremiah as well, Jeremiah 18. And we spent some time looking at it, in fact, reading through it. And a couple of points that we made is he's dealing with Israel, just as Paul is dealing with the nation in general here. Now, I think he gets down to the specific individual as well. But in general, you need to keep the idea of Paul dealing with the nation as a corporate entity, He's not dealing, and and by the way, he's not dealing with the issue of heaven and hell in this passage as well. He's dealing with God choosing particularly the nation of Israel, and I've, I've been stressing that. The issue is how many of these principles that we've developed transfer over to the individual during the church age, and there's a debate amongst good uh, scholarly conservative Bible teachers in this area. I kind of introduced some of that, and we took a little excursus on the doctrine of election to kind of put this passage within the broader context. But anyway, uh, keep in mind, and I'll be reminded, reminding you that the, the nation is in view in this, this passage uh, overall, and I would say that uh, obviously the nation is made up of individuals, and to some extent, I think an individual is involved as well. So he's going to bring this illustration primarily out of Jeremiah 18. And also, one thing to note there, Jeremiah 18 doesn't picture God as this rigid being that has determined every little aspect In fact, you have human responsibility there and even the statement that if Israel in that context would respond differently, abandon idolatry and turn back to God, that God would withhold the judgment that is being brought upon them. And in that context, it's the judgment of the Babylonian captivity. So, Human responsibility and volition are involved in the whole process, and that's where the tension lies. So this illustration of the potter is not this rigid God determining every rotation of every electron around every proton and every little aspect of the universe. God is built into this bigger picture. 
the, uh, the, the, the choices and the volition of man. Now, God is sovereign over all of that, and I think God accomplishes all of his purposes. We might even say in spite of the choices and decisions of, of man, but there is a role, and God does not violate human responsibility. So does not the potter have a right over the clay? We have six questions. I'm not going to go over all of them again. Two of them in verse 19 are focused on questions relating to the objection. And then verse 20, he begins to refute them, but he refutes them by asking questions with answers that uh, imply certain answers that we develop. Verse 20, there's no right of the creation to even question God and also the concept of a creator-creation distinction. And then verse 21, another refutation with another question, the sovereignty of the potter. And here are the passages we looked at last time and the imagery that we drew, particularly from Jeremiah 18. So God is, in Romans 8, what right, as the passage uh, brings to us here, The word authority, what authority? Well, he is sovereign authority. And he talks about one lump, kind of looking at all of humanity here. Taking from one lump reminds us that all of us have certain characteristics that are all under wrath and that God is under no obligation to do anything good on behalf of all of the lump because all are depraved. He would be perfectly just, as I've been emphasizing, if in fact he destroyed and or rejected all of humanity, but he also is a God of mercy and grace. So God has the right, that's the word authority in the Greek text there, over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use. I'm going to expand upon that in verse 22 and another for common use. And I use the illustration, vessels of honorable use, something that is a, a piece of art that took more, takes more time in the hands of a potter, more detail to enhance the beauty of flowers. The illustration here, God in a similar way can choose to take an individual and make something beautiful out of their lives. And he can also deal with the common everyday, just like the illustration of a potter. He can mass produce pot after pot after pot, all the same for common use. In other words, everyday use, like the illustration illustrates here. That's the prerogative of the potter. He can do whatever he wants to with that lump of clay. The picture, the analogy is God can do the same with his creation. So, we have the nation of Israel and all of the nations in in context in the Jeremiah 18, 6 through 10, 6 through 10 passage, which brings us to some of the principles that we developed that, that God does not, in choosing and in rejecting, he does not violate or remove man's responsibility, 19 through 21. And he is absolutely, as a potter, is absolutely free and sovereign in the choices that he makes. So that brings us to verse 22 where we left off. This sovereignty is displayed by the choices that are evident historically and in the examples that God has given in in the passage itself. And he asks another question. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known. In other words, there's a plan. In other words, there's a design. There's there's reasoning behind the choices that God has made. And some of those choices, I think, well, I think all of them are before he even created. I think God has a big plan that unfolds as history begins to unfold before us. And he gives us bits and pieces of revelation concerning that plan. And in time, he demonstrates something about himself. And I'd like to get into this idea of God even demonstrating some of that plan and something about himself through vessels of wrath. And there's lots of other passages that I'll refer you to. We won't have time to spend in all of them, but I'll refer to some of them and we'll look at a couple of them 
by way of example, where God in history has, in fact, demonstrated aspects of who he is, including some aspects concerning wrath. The nature of God includes wrath. That's one of the uh, perfections of God is that God is a God of wrath. In fact, uh, when he created man, he created us in his image and part of the image of God he has conveyed. We call these communicable attributes. In other words, attributes that God has communicated to us. He has created us in his image and he has given us the capacity to express anger. Not all of it is sin, easily falls into sin, but in and of itself, Anger is part of the image of God, and this is an aspect of who God is, and we can understand a little bit of it in that we experience something in a very limited and finite way. But God demonstrates this in the way that he's dealing with humanity in in general. And not only that, but uh, he also is making known other aspects of who he is. And as you notice, verse 22 is another question, the sixth one, where he asks a question, what if God wants to do this? Are we in a position to even question it? No, but uh, we can learn some things from uh, the question that he asks, and that's what he's implying in terms of how we should respond to the question. So this is the sixth question, and then he's going to go on in verse 23 to expand upon uh, the answer here. So I have a question. Go ahead, Jim. You said that uh, God's wrath is more part of his perfections. I, uh, where do you get that from? I mean, it's clear, for example, one of his perfections or attributes, which is my preference, but yours is perfections. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, you know, so God is love. That's a, you know, that's a clear statement. Yes. Uh, of one of his perfections, where do you get that wrath is part of his perfection, one of his perfections? Oh, there's, uh, there's, I want to say hundreds of passages that uh, tell us and that God is a God of wrath. And, and there's, uh, hundreds, literally thousands of examples where we see God expressing his wrath. And we could do an entire study on that and come up with literally hundreds of passages that that communicate the concept of that being an aspect of who God is. I think it's a subset of his justice, and his justice is very clear in scripture and he expresses his justice in uh, pouring out mercy, I think, upon those that he has chosen, but also pouring out wrath. The mercy part extends to the grace aspect of who he is as well, but the pouring out of wrath is punishment that is due for violating the uh, just requirements and the, the just absolutes of God. So the wrath of God I, I see as another perfection that we could in, we could pursue. And maybe sometime like we've seen some of the other perfections, we can look at that one as well. I don't know if that answers your question. I'll I can send you a, a list. I don't have any of them at the top of my head right now, but other than this Romans nine passage. God damn well, that's, that's okay. I, I can see that if I'm gonna be come to the same conclusion, I need to study that myself. Because, I mean, the expression of something doesn't mean that it's necessarily uh, intrinsic to who they are. Uh, so, uh, but I, I don't, we don't need to go further on that. I'll study that on my own. Yeah. Well, I think this Romans passage, in fact, tells us that God is demonstrating, and it's in the context of God's glory. Remember, we've already seen that. And I see the perfections as expressions and illustrations of that glory of God and uh, aspects of the overall uh, perfections of God that the glory, I think, encompasses. 
But the main point here, I think God demonstrates that in the way that he expresses himself. And we can talk some more about whether it's a perfection or not. Uh, most conservative, Bible-believing uh, theologians would classify it as one of the attributes or perfections. But like okay. I said, we'll, we'll go on. So he's giving basically a, another answer in this passage. And if we had the time, we could also see that the grammar, you know, he puts it as a if what if, but uh, he never follows up with the thus, then, or, you know, that. So it kind of is left as a question, almost unanswered with only implications. And in the Greek grammar, there's some difficulties there. I don't think we need to get into some of them. But the bottom line, after we analyze it, I think another principle of God's election, which I see kind of underlying everything he's saying in chapter 9. Number 10 is his election is dependent on his will as the sovereign. And verse 22, what if God is willing to do these things? It's not dependent on man, but it dependent solely on God. So we've been kind of developing these as we've gone through the passage. What is he demonstrating besides his wrath? There's three things in the passage, at least. He's demonstrating his wrath, and he's making known his power. It's a display of the omnipotent power of God on a finite, limited scale. In this case, in the illustration that he's been using of Pharaoh, I think he's alluding back to the immediate context here. So God is making known power, and he's also, I think, part of the passage here, and part of it is difficult in the Greek text, how, how it's all connected, but I think we can view it as a, a, another thing that he's revealing. He's enduring with much patience vessels of wrath, and I see another perfection of God is his patience. Some translations translate long-suffering, but the idea of patience, God enduring an aspect of God. In fact, what I'd like to do is kind of expand this concept and show you that not only in terms of the Egyptians and Pharaoh in that time frame, but this is, this is kind of an enduring demonstration that you can see in every age of world history. And I'll give you some examples of that. And we can work our way through the entire Bible to see where God, with much patience, waits upon vessels of wrath. Now, that in itself is grace. That by itself is mercy. And what is in view here is primarily the entire unbelieving world of which in this context, Pharaoh is kind of the evil personification, you might say, of, of all the unbelieving world. And he's, he's stating it in verse 22 in this broad sense. In other words, this broad idea, this broad principle of God demonstrating certain things to his creation as he works through history. And one of the things that he's done is he endures with much patience vessels of wrath, before he intervenes in uh, carrying out what the next phrase talks about, prepared for destruction, and we'll need to expand upon that. But let me take us on a little expansion and uh, with some illustrations of how God has done that historically. But to begin with, let's take a look at something that God has built into the, what I would say, the fallen world. Because I believe scientifically, based on the revelation that we have of Genesis 3, and I've talked about this before, God has built into the creation. In fact, we looked at this when we were in chapter 8, because I think we have one of the clearest statements of the second law of thermodynamics in that Romans 8 passage. And by the way, I'm going to be the speaker at the... Uh, July Creation Science Fellowship meeting, those of you that would want to go to it. I'm going to do a exposition of that Romans 8 passage from kind of the science perspective, and I'm going to kind of develop 
the second law and explain it because I think that passage, I think it's one of the, the greatest scientific passages in all of the Bible that sets the parameters for not only laws of science, but particularly the second law of thermodynamics. Now, I'm just going to remind you of the essence of it, the essence of the second law. It's this irreversible tendency in the creation. And by the way, it's observed everywhere that you can make an observation, whether it be out in the universe or whether you can observe it at the atomic level. You can see this irreversible tendency of things to unravel or unwind or fall apart, you might say. It's this movement that is universal everywhere in the universe, a movement from organization to disorganization. Romans in Genesis 3, I think, ties it to God's judgment. It's part of what God imposed, that's what Romans tells us, Romans 8, upon the creation as a result of Adam's sin. And from that time on, there's been a movement from organization to disorganization. There's also a future where God's going to turn the switch off on the second law thermodynamics, which science cannot discover because it has no way of seeing into the future. We encounter it every day. It's the law of decay, the the idea of everything falling apart. Things do not self-organize. Things don't clean themselves up. Wrinkles don't go away on a more personal level. I think this is an illustration, and by the way, we have these passages in the Old Testament and New Testament that describe the second law. We looked at the Romans 8 passage. I think it's an illustration of a corresponding, what we might call the second law of spiritual dynamics. And that's what I want to illustrate from this Romans uh, 9 passage where you can see this same principle on a spiritual level. Now, it works itself out in individuals. It works itself out in groups. It works itself out in the culture. And it works itself out on a big scale where these radical changes take place as a result of God's intervention. So I see that not only is there an irreversible tendency to unwind, a movement from organization to disorganization, a law of decay, but a second law of spiritual dynamics where there's a tendency, and uh, we might even say an irreversible tendency by man, but a tendency to depart from God. In other words, that, and we can view that individually, and we can see that, we sense it, that my tendency, uh, I have to be continually fed. I have to continually devote myself. I have to continually grow. I have to, I have to put effort in. If I don't, uh, nothing stays static spiritually. I will decline. And there's a tendency built into the old nature to depart from God. We could uh, describe it using the analogy of the second law of spiritual dynamics. There's also always a movement from a relationship personal relationship to God, to to law, you might say, or to religion, and a desire to try to do things in order to gain God's favor. I think that's part of this second law. You see it in church movements. You see it on an individual basis, etc. And we might say, thirdly, it's the law of spiritual decay. The tendency to spiritually decay What we need is input from outside of ourselves, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, the impact of the Word of God, the the nurturing and the feeding of our spirits from, from God himself to counteract this spiritual tendency to decay. And it works itself out in individual cultures. So there's a tendency of cultures to degenerate. And we probably are at the end of an an age in the plan of God that we can see this affecting the culture in which we live in as well. And what I'd like to share is examples that you see throughout Scripture on the big scale. And I call this cycles of sin. In fact, this is one of the principles that I developed in that world history is Jewish talk that I alluded to earlier. There seem to be these cycles of sin 
where God works a work of grace. So everything begins with God. And you could even include the creation here, where God created a very good creation. That's a work of grace. It's grace because God did not have to create. He chose for his purposes to create a universe that has creatures, and he chose to give some creatures something of what what he is like in the image of God, but he had no obligation to do any of that. It's a work of grace. But as these cycles unfold, God begins a new era, and it's a new era of a work of grace. But once sin entered, sin begins its corrupting effects, and that's why I began with that second law of spiritual dynamics, where you have this tendency of it working out, the tendency to always depart from God, the uh, spiritual tendency of decay, sin begins its corrupting effects. And then we have a third effect that I think the Romans 8.22 passage is telling us about, where God throughout history has endured with much patience this sinful activity, this corrupting effect. And in the Romans 9.22, he endured with much patience vessels of wrath. So God patiently enduring until sin reaches its full corruption. And you can begin with the fall of man. And then you see that God provides a means of relationship. Even in the Genesis 3 passage, he gives the 3.15, which is a promise that he will ultimately deal with sin. In fact, I see 3.15 as kind of a microcosm of all of world history where God is dealing with this issue of sin and he's going to deal with it as you look at the Old Testament and even the New Testament. God will deal with it working through these cycles where he allows in time sin to have its corrupting effects and he patiently endures until it reaches its full corruption. And when you get to Genesis 6, you see the full corruption where man is totally corrupt and God then fourthly intervenes to judge and to save. And you see this pattern throughout world history. In fact, you're going to even see it in the millennial kingdom when everything is remade, everything where Christ himself, the sinless king, is reigning. What do you have at the end of Revelation chapter 20? You have a final rebellion where God intervenes in judgment. But whenever there's judgment, when God deals with sin, he also saves. And you see that pattern as well. And the saving aspect is the work of grace. So you see from Adam to the flood that corrupting effects, and you see the effects beginning right after Adam. What There's a second generation. You, you have sin blatantly dis- displayed in one of the sons killing his brother. And then that corrupting effect continues until all of humanity is corrupted at the Genesis flood. God intervenes to judge, but he also saves a family. You don't have enough detail, but you could see the end product of the same cycle going to the Tower of Babel. You certainly see it in God bringing about the call of Abraham And you see that Isaac is not the man of faith that uh, Abraham is, and Jacob is even less. And you see the corrupting effects even in the patriarchal period, and God has to intervene and take them out of the Canaanite environment, out of Canaan, and they end up in Egypt. And God allows the full corruption of that, And the exodus is God judging the Egyptians and saving the children of Israel. And then you see it in the history of Israel where they rise to the kingdom age. And then the kingdom, you see the corrupting effects of sin in the kings and in the people. God enduring for years and years, sending prophets to bring people back. There's a little revival here. There's a recommitment, but then you see the corrupting effects continuing until sin reaches its full idolatry in the case of Israel, and God intervenes to the north and brings the Assyrians to destroy them. 
the northern kingdom, and then eventually God continues to endure sin until it reaches its full corruption in the south, full idolatry, and then God brings the Babylonians to destroy the southern kingdom. Then you have a little restoration until the, the coming of Messiah, and you see the degeneration of Judaism in the first century, and the it reaches its full corruption in that the Jewish people crucify even their Messiah. But God uses it for the basis of salvation for all time. God judging, putting the sin of mankind on Jesus Christ on the cross and making that the means of saving. And God promised that he would build his church. And in that building of the church, he is a work of grace. And we may be at the end of this cycle of sin where God is enduring the full corruption even within the church itself. Does that make sense? And I think this is what he's talking about, just hinting at it in in Romans chapter 9, where he's demonstrating wrath, but it doesn't come all at once. And and by the way, even in uh, the Abrahamic covenant, God promises that the children of Israel in Genesis 15 will have to be in Egypt until the full corruption of what are described as the Amorites in Genesis 15. That was a Canaanite tribe. And when the full corruption of the Canaanites came, and at that time God intervened in judgment, and the conquest of Canaan was God pouring out judgment upon the Canaanites. So the unbelieving Canaanites, God endured with much patience those vessels of wrath. Does that make sense in terms of this passage? And in this case, he's talking about part of Israel, and uh, I think in a broad sense, also alluding back to Pharaoh, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now, this word prepared and this, this whole concept here introduces not just grammatical problems, but it introduces these theological problems of uh, this idea of God preparing for destruction. It almost seems like this fatalistic God working in such a way that people are locked out, you might say, God preventing people from coming. But if you go through those historical examples, you find in every one of those ages, there's always opportunity. In fact, God is enduring for the purpose of giving people time to turn to him on an individual basis, at least. And in some cases, even repentance amongst like the nation of Israel. So we have a difficult theological problem that uh, I think we need to look at here in a little bit more detail. The, the word here can be used in a positive sense to prepare something in a good sense or to even repair something. And in this context, it may be, I'm getting a little technical here in the Greek, it may be reflexive. In other words, preparing themselves. In other words, the unbeliever is in the process of hardening himself and that hardening of himself, it could be reflexive or even passive not necessarily with God as the subject here. So it's, I think, that hardening process that we looked at when it talks about this preparation, it not does not necessarily go back to the hand of God, you might say, in terms of doing the preparing. Now, certainly God is involved just as he's involved in the hardening process by abandoning, like we saw from Romans 1. So we have this idea, and then this idea of destruction. I think in this context, and in fact, there are very few contexts where the Greek word is used here. I don't have it on the screen. But that Greek word, in a few passages, does refer to eternal destruction, or hell, or the lake of fire. But in most of the context, it is temporal. In fact, most of the usages in the Old Testament have a temporal sense. And what may be in view in this passage, and we're going to see more detail as we work further in, he's going to talk more about this judging idea as we get further into this same passage in chapter 9. I think he's alluding, when it comes to the nation of Israel, remember this is written 
at the end of the third missionary journey, uh, this would have been, what is that, early 60s in terms of 60 AD. This is before 70 AD. And I think what he's warning in this passage is Israel is under the wrath of God and that God can intervene. This is part of his explanation of why they are set aside during this time frame. And there's a warning that there's a destruction coming. And in the Old Testament, it could be as a result of war. It could be as a result of calamity. The same Greek word in the uh, Septuagint, the Greek translation. And in the Greek translation, it translates many uh, Hebrew words that have this temporal component. And many of them don't have anything to do with uh, eternity. And I think that's the context of this whole passage in Romans 9 as well. So we have destruction. Well, let me conclude, and we'll have to do this quickly because our time is running out here. And let me expand a little bit of this glory that God is displaying. And I use this from a study that I do in apologetics on uh, trying to take this concept of why does God even allow evil to begin with? Why did God design a universe that has evil in it? If he is sovereign, if he is creator, he could have designed a universe that did not have evil. But in order to do that, there's a long explanation. I don't want to get into it in detail. We don't have the time. It'll take at least an hour. And by the way, there's a talk on my website, I can give you a reference to it later, but where I go into some detail here. But part of it is that God has designed this universe in such a way that he has permitted evil. He's never the author of it. He's never the author of evil or sin, but he has permitted it in the universe that he has created. And I think there's a bigger purpose for it and one of the bigger purposes is that it displays something of his glory. In fact, you might think about this. Think about this. How will we know anything about God's justice and God's judgment unless there were in some way a display of justice and wrath and judgment? So he has created and permitted, never the author of, evil to use evil in order to display something of who he is. And there's lots of examples in scripture. I'll give you a, a few of them. One of them is the blind man in John 9. And for the sake of time, let me just read it. You remember the incident there and they ask, disciples ask Jesus, let me read it. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? In other words, who's responsible for this blindness? This man or his parents, that he would be born blind? In other words, there has to be evil and sin behind it. Now, we're uh, part of the answer is we live in a fallen world where these things happen, but it's not necessarily ultimately tied to the sin of parents or the sin of the children. Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor that his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And if you remember, he goes on and heals the man. In verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day, night is coming, etc. And he goes and expands of how the healing Ultimately, is God displaying his omnipotent power and his ability to intervene and, and change on a finite level. That's just one example. You could see Lazarus. Do you remember the details of the passage in John 11? The, the women are, you know, they're almost reprimanding Jesus. You know, if you had come sooner, he wouldn't have died. You could have healed him, but he's dead. And what does Jesus say? This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. So God turning around and using the evil effects, even death itself, to bring glory to himself. 
we could see lots of examples, and I've got some examples in other scriptures of how God has used unbelievers. We've talked a little bit about that. The Romans 9 passage deals with that. And the passage that we have before us is another example, the Romans 9 passage. Uh, Job himself, Job didn't have a picture of chapters 1 and 2, but we see what God is doing. He's actually displaying something of who he is to the angelic realm. In the whole life of Job, Job goes through extreme suffering, suffering that none of us will ever experience, and yet God is using that to display something of himself in the life of Job, and then he ends up blessing him. So there's lots of examples. The ultimate one would be the death of Christ, the ultimate injustice of all time in all of the universe, past, future, The ultimate injustice is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and yet God transforms that into good. It's also the means by which he saves all. And part of what God is doing in displaying his glory is he's displaying these things to the angelic realm itself. And there's lots of little passages where we have little hints. Let me give you just one in 1 Corinthians 11.10, and I've got a list about nine of these, or eight or nine of them. I don't have the numbers with them. But in 1 Corinthians 11, remember the issue is head coverings and the issue of authority and some of the things that Paul says there. Then he almost throws in, almost out of left field, he just kind of throws in the little comment. Therefore, the women ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. And then a little phrase here. Because of the angels. In other words, God is doing things amongst humans, amongst us, and sometimes within our suffering, because he's demonstrating certain things beyond even the realm in which we can touch and see and feel, the realm in which we live. He's displaying things to angels. And you'll see this little phrase, because of the angels in many passages, or even more overtly, he's talking about God displaying certain things. Well, the point I'm making here is this is an example in Romans 8 of God displaying his glory, which brings us to a principle that can summarize some of this. His election provides for the display of his glory through not just the believers, but in this case, unbelievers as well. We saw a little of that in verse 17, and I think it's made more explicit in uh, verse 22. And we need to end at this point, and we'll pick up in verse 23 next time. Because he's leading to, and by the way, in 23 and 24, he's going to take it back to the the overall context. Why has he gone through all of these 22 verses, you might say, to explain the situation with the nation of Israel? Now in 23 and 24, he's bringing it back. And he did so to make known the riches, there's that little phrase again, the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. So not only vessels of wrath to display something of who he is, but especially vessels of mercy, which he prepared. There's a different word there, by the way. We'll look at that. Prepared beforehand. In fact, that's two words to translate one. He prepared beforehand for glory. Here, the subject of the preparation is clearly he. In other words, God himself. He's demonstrating his glory even through the evil of man. He can take that and like a potter, he can take a lump and he can make and mold out of it vessels that he wants to display beauty and riches And he can take the same lump, the same depravity, and pass over it like a Pharaoh or any unbeliever. And he still is glorified in that he is shown to be a God of justice. And he will display justice and wrath and mercy. In fact, we would not know of mercy and grace if there were not examples of God displaying wrath and justice and judgment upon the unbeliever and and without allowing and permitting evil to exist, those are some attributes of God that we may never 
understand or know. So our little study here, I think, is uh, is full of deep insight into why God permitted evil overall, and more specifically, why in the first century he is going to pass over Israel. He's going to explain further as we get further in, and why when he's talking about vessels of mercy here, he's talking about Gentiles. He's talking about how God allows and permits the, the what the Jews would have called dogs to enter into forgiveness of sin and salvation and the promises that God had made to Israel, but now is extending to, to the Gentiles. Well, I think we've gone a little bit over. Any comments? Questions on what we've talked about. We can close with this idea that God, in his choosing, part of that, the negative aspect of passing over some, provides for the display of his glory through uh, the unbeliever or vessels, he even says strongly there, prepared for wrath or destruction, rather. No comments? You all just... uh, so stunned you have nothing to comment on maybe everybody's asleep uh right one question in uh, the main uh question <laughs> you wrote um the second answer now which verses or which which answer is the second answer well i think verse 22 starts it and then he goes on through verse 24 actually through 29 Okay. Uh, he just starts keep, in verse twenty-two. Yeah, right. and he just keeps ex- he just keeps kind of elaborating right. on it and explaining. The main answer is God is displaying His glory through vessels of wrath, oh. and He's expanding that concept, that idea. Thanks, Ray. Thanks, Ray. I'm stunned. You're stunned. Good. Yeah, thank you. I like that link to your. Oh, this is Janie. The link you were talking about. Um, I'll send it out. To, I'll send it out to everybody. Oh, great! Thank you. Kind of. Ray, a, go ahead. This is Denise. Yes. Um, one thing that comes to mind to me is the fact that Israel had been called to be a light to the nations and the glory of God through the Gentiles, and this is just a, a continual manifestation of God's mercy, both to the Jew and to the Gentile. Exactly. Yeah. Very good. Very good. And we're going to see both. We, we're going to see both as we move through the passage. Let's see. Who's this one? Marty. Marty. Yeah, I got it. Um, I'm going to write you a note because I, you said that God, um, doesn't create evil, but he allows it, which makes it sound like evil has its own existence. So I'm going to write you a note with my ideas on that. So you don't have to address it now, okay. but I'm giving you a warning. Oh, I'm warned of the wrath, the, the wrath of Marty coming. There you go. <laughs> Any other comments, questions before we somebody be ready to pray so we can close in prayer? Okay. No questions. Well, on what Marty was just saying, I mean, I think we're diverging a little here, but um, this is Janie again. Um, uh, the question of where evil originated was it Satan? Yes. Okay. Ultimately. And it originates on planet Earth in Genesis 3 in mankind. Yes. So, Ray, I I don't see how that can be. Um, But if we go back to Genesis 1, I think you can see in creation how God puts, sets things up, but leaves that responsibility and choice open. But in his perfect creation, it didn't have to happen. He still is the one that pronounced the curse. So, yes. yeah, yep. I think if you're going to be in, have wrath, probably knows what to do with evil or he's not, go, he's not God. Yep. So, yep. And yeah. Yeah, I'd agree. See ya. All right. Anything else? Somebody want to close for us? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your grace and your mercy, um, that have allowed us into your body. Um, I pray that as we walk through our weeks, we would reveal uh, or display your glory that uh, would be instruments of mercy as you have designed us for the good works that you have created for us to do. I pray also for Bill and Mary Lee as they're heading back from Colorado 
after tending uh, their sick cousin who actually has COVID, um, so that Mary Lee may have to quarantine herself for a while. But, Lord, I pray for their safe travels and for your watch care over Mary Ann and Bill and Mary Lee. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for that prayer. Yeah, we are vessels of mercy that he wants to display his light. Very good, Connie. All righty, I'm going to sign off. And I See you sent- later, Ray.